Heavenly Father, we thank you that the word that you have given us is faithful and true in every respect. We thank you for how it can guide our lives and and shape us, Lord, and speak to us through you. Lord, we just love you. We thank you for everything this morning, for our time together. Pray that you would uh, bless the teaching of your word, bless our fellowship as we gather. Lord, again, we thank you that we could all be here. Pray that we would all 
bless and edify each other as we're in your house this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Well, good morning again. Uh, happy Memorial Day weekend. Um, you know, as we were praying this morning, um, the sentiment came to me that there's no shortage of lamenting when we look at our culture today. Uh, even regardless of what side of the political stripe you sit on, there seems to be nothing but uh, complaints uh, and dissatisfaction, and in many cases, rightly so. Um, so continue to pray for our nation and pray for the culture around us. Pray for revival. Uh, this particular weekend, though, is not about um, any of that. It's Memorial Day is about uh, servicemen who have died in service of their country. It's not even about thanking veterans as, as much as we should continue to do that um, and thank people who are serving, who have served. This particular weekend is about people who have served and paid that ultimate price. Uh, so I would just encourage you, uh, many of you probably know someone like that. Um, as much as we pray for our culture to get better, for our country to improve, this is still an amazingly blessed land. And it is in no short part due to those who sacrifice their lives uh, so that we could continue to live the way that we do and have the freedoms that we do. So I would just ask you to pray for those and be thankful for those on this Memorial Day weekend, in addition uh, to continuing to pray for our country and for our culture. So after that very heavy intro, I'll get into some announcements. Um, uh, so I was told to mention that for any of the ladies who are wanting to be part of the Bible study, there is uh, a sign-up in the back. It's going to begin June 9th. And if anybody doesn't yet have a book, there are books available. And I was told that you could reach out to um, to Suzanne um, and to uh, Elizabeth Bagger right here on the front row. If you want to be part of that and you haven't signed up yet and you'd like a book, uh, they can get you the book and then the sign-up sheet is in the back. That's going to be uh, June 9th uh, at Karen Resch's house um, on Thursdays at 10 a.m. Uh, starting June 9th, going through the book of Philippians. So sign up if you haven't already. Our next Musicians Fellowship is going to be rescheduled uh, for some time in July, so just keep your eyes open for that. And Brian, the next men's breakfast, you said June 19th. June 19th, Saturday, 8 a.m., uh, Cracker Barrel in Cool Springs. Grecian in Spring Hill. That was pretty close. <laughs> 8 a.m. is the Grecian Pizzeria, right? A Grecian Pizzeria in Spring Hill. That's June 19th, uh, Saturday morning. Uh, next potluck, uh, two weeks away now at uh, Aspen Grove Park in Cool Springs, 10 a.m. Uh, we're transitioning from, once we sort of got a head count of all y'all and figured out what it would take to make 100 hot dogs and 100 hamburgers, um, we kind of decided that barbecue would be better, uh, so we're we're going to have a barbecue potluck. There are there is still a sign up sheet if you would like to bring sides, uh, condiments, drinks, that kinds of thing. Uh, but again, that's going to be in two weeks. We'll have church outside, um, worship outside, fellowship afterwards, food together. So pray for good weather, 
and uh, look forward to seeing everybody there. Hope everyone can make it. Uh, anything else anybody asked me to mention? <laughs> Honestly, it sort of runs together sometimes. That would be Saturday, so that would be June 18th. Thank you. Yeah. Come here Sunday. Don't, don't go to the restaurant Sunday. Come here. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> so there are uh, Bible study. You can do the AM version at 10 AM, and that's at Karen's home. You could do the PM version at 6:30. That's at Elizabeth's home. So either way, we encourage you to sign up and attend one or both, whatever your pleasure. Um, but do sign up in the back for that. All right. I, I think I better uh, think I better call it quits now. <laughs> Love y'all truly. <laughs> All right. Well, before we continue, why don't you stand and love on each other at the same time? Well, good morning again. Before you get to, before you get too comfortable, we'll ask you to find a seat and then stand where you are. It's a rough crowd this morning. All right. Well, if you've got your Bible ready, why don't you go ahead and stand? We're going to read uh, from the Word of God as we begin this morning. And in particular, I'm going to have you open to Psalm 16. We're going to read verses 5 and 6. Psalm 16, verses 5 and 6, where it says, O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. Father, we do thank you, Lord, for the hope and the promise that you've given us. We thank you for the things we're reading about and studying about here on Sundays that remind us of this. 
And uh, Father, we are blessed that one day you'll be glorified in all the earth. One day you'll even create a new earth and a new heaven. And so, Father, our great hope yet lies ahead, but we walk each day closer and closer to that day. So thank you for all that is planned and that we'll get to enjoy that and share that in your presence. We love you and praise you, Lord. And again, we do thank you for this time and pray that you would bless it as we open your word together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, by the way, um, go ahead and be seated. Uh, Michael uh, spoke to this, and I just wanted to kind of dovetail on that as well. Um, as we celebrate Memorial Day, and, and as he mentioned, you know, it's, uh, this is a day that we remember those who, um, as Lincoln put it, gave the last full measure. Uh, those who really have, with the seed of their own blood, have paved the way for us to enjoy freedoms that, uh, that have been unheard of on the earth in all of man's history. I mean, that's not overstating it. It's remarkable to think that as, as fallen and as falling apart as so much is happening uh, in the world and even in our own country, as, as Michael said, this is still uh, a remarkably free place. And, uh, and so we do. We remember those who have died and have given their lives for us. You know, we, 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 we ought always to remember those who uh, have signed up. And as Wes and I were talking this morning, he really put it well when he said, you know, when you sign up to join the service, you are signing up to give it all if required. That's really a tall order. And uh, in a day that so many people are being canceled, so many ideas are being trodden on as though it were a small thing, we honor and bless and thank those of you who have served and also those who have lost somebody who have served. Um, I don't want to single one out, but, but for the sake of honoring you, has anyone in here lost someone in their family? Thank you. Thank you. The way Lincoln put that, the last full measure, leaving nothing. Why? For you and I, for generations to come, to have a place that they could call home and truly find rest and freedom in ways that, again, were before this nation was born completely unheard of. And so... I, I don't believe anyone in here wouldn't, but as a reminder, always be thankful for those who have given so much. Um, many of us didn't serve in the service, and so none of uh, those of us who didn't can't really understand what it's like to know that such a thing might be required. And so with whatever we can muster up, we just, again, thank those of you who have known or related to, have lost someone who has served, and for those of you who still do serve or those have signed up and have served over the course of your life, you mean the world to us. Thank you. Um, that's for y'all. Absolutely. Well, you know, the truth of the matter is, is that there are many things in this world that break our hearts. There are a lot of things that trouble us. But there's a new day coming. There's a new day coming when there's going to be a new heaven, a new earth. Is that better, Izzy? A little better? When all things will be made new, a new heavens, a new earth. We'll be with the Lord. He will be our God. We'll be his people. We'll be in his presence in a way that has, to this point, never been experienced. Um, I'm so thankful that as sons and daughters of the king, 
that we do have a relationship with him, that we do experience on some level. There's a sense of at least safety and security in knowing that we're his, that he will one day bring to full realization the redemption of that purchased possession, that one day these bodies we're in right now will be gloriously changed and fit for the place that we're ultimately created for. This is a great hope. And as we've said before, when a Christian hopes, a Christian is not hoping in the sense that we don't really know for sure if it's happening, so we're crossing our fingers, hoping that it will happen. That's not a Christian hope at all. The Christian's hope is one that is sure and settled. It's settled in the heavens, as a matter of fact. It is done. And and from God's perspective, it is a done deal. There's no if, there's only when. And of course, it will come in his perfect time when he decides that now is the time. And so we wait, and we long, and we cry out for um, we grieve over what is now, but thankfully, like, not like those that have no hope, but rather we know that our hope is a living hope that is yet to come and is sure. And so up to this point, as we have gotten into chapter uh, 22, uh, the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, literally the last book recorded in the Bible, it's not just last in terms of its placement, it's the final word in, in Scripture that has been given to us. Uh, penned by John and and here for us to read and to understand, to grow in, to worship the Lord through, to have our hope restored and renewed through. And we have been looking at, uh, in these these words to this point, in this last chapter plus or so, um, sort of a description of what things will look like. We have seen what the end of our hope, at least to some degree, John attempts to give us in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit a sense of what things will look like when that day comes. And it, as, as you know, hopefully you noticed as we went through it, it had to be difficult for John to put into words um, what this really looked like. And so we dive in the Greek and we try and figure out as much as we can. But I think that the best we can do is only so good. One day when we see it, it'll be beyond anything we could ever ask, hope, or think. It'll be beautiful beyond any words that have been created yet. You know, Paul sort of alludes to this when he talks about himself in the third person as one who went to the third heaven, that place where God dwells, and he saw things that would be unlawful to describe. As if to say, if I tried to put words to the things that I saw, it would not do justice to what I saw. That's enough for me for now. But I'm very much looking forward to seeing what he saw, being in that place. Most of all, Most of all, the thing that will make it most glorious and most beautiful is that the relationship that you and I have been longing for and have been created for. We've all heard the expression, there's a God-shaped void in every man's heart that only he can fill. And there is truth to that idea. And one day, even though in in a sense, at a certain level, we, we experience that today, right? Christ lives within us. The Holy Spirit is the seal of our guarantee. We understand what it means to have him not just with us, but even in us. But one day we will, in, in, in his presence, every longing will be satisfied. Every thing that our imaginations and hearts could not even find words to express will be satisfied. That's what's coming. And so with that, as we move into the final words, verse 6 on through 21, this now moves from a description so to speak, there's elements, but really it moves kind of from a description to an invitation. It's, it's like the last words of the Bible encapsulate an enormous amount of please come. 
Listen to what's been said. Look at what's been described, both in terms of what is ultimately coming upon the world, but what is ultimately coming with the new world that is going to be created and come. And so with that, let me just begin to read in chapter 22 of Revelation, starting in verse 6. Then he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I'm going to just start there. He, the angel, said to me, these words are faithful and true. These words, these words, the words that have been shared by the angel to John and by extension to the churches and even further by extension to those like us who would be reading these things in years to come. These words are faithful and true. There are a lot of words that exist out there that try and describe what is next for the human being. Some would say nothing, that we just sort of evaporate into nothingness, hopeless, cold, clinical. There are others that would claim that when we die, we sort of become part of this divine thing. Call it nirvana, call it whatever. Again, a sort of losing of yourself in this thing. And heaven's not so much a place as much as a reality to be experienced or something. Even as a Catholic, when I grew up, Um, heaven wasn't described to me, literally, one-on-one with a priest. It was not described to me as a place as much as sort of a state of being, a beatific vision that we sort of experience, but not like in the sort of physical way that the book of Revelation and other passages uh, would would relate to it. Um, But the scriptures speak differently, and therefore these words are faithful and true. God has spoken to us in his word. Now, this can be demonstrated through all kinds of, you know, uh, different, different avenues, and it's not my intention to do that this morning. We will do it and have done it, and we'll do it again, that kind of thing. But this morning, I don't want to really go into that per se, except just simply to assume the point among this particular crowd that God has spoken here in this word. As a matter of fact, this word supersedes anything you think he's ever told you personally. If it doesn't line up with what he said here, he didn't speak to you because we know for sure that he spoke here. The word of God is faithful and true. And therefore, when he speaks to this, what is heaven like? What can we expect in the days to come leading to that time when he creates a new heavens and a new earth? And what will it be like when he does? He speaks faithfully and in truth. In other words, you can rely on what he has said, not only to be true, but it will come true. And so these words are faithful and true. The Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show these uh, his servants the things which must shortly take place, which, by the way, equates what John is writing here on the same level and par as those prophets that have come before, whether old or new, Testament. Uh, in the same way that those words were inspired, as Peter would say, holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. None of this was of private interpretation. But rather, these things were given by inspiration of God. Tim, uh, Paul would say to Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed, theonoustos, given by inspiration of God, and is therefore profitable in the ways that he describes. God's word, whether it's through the prophets of old, the prophets in the New Testament, or whether John right here in these final words, this is from the same source of inspiration. The Holy Spirit is giving these words that we might know that they are faithful and true. It's as though he's putting his stamp of approval on these words. 
And of course, he goes on to say there, he's showing his servants the things which must shortly take place. Now, you will see here a few times, three in particular, after this verse where he says, I am coming quickly. The idea of shortly and quickly and the idea of of a soon arrival of these things is an important concept and principle for us. Now, of course, in reality, it's been 2,000 years since John wrote these words, right? I mean, it's not like he just wrote them last week and we're, you know. But those in the churches in that time and the churches ever since have been looking for the coming of Christ as a result of his promise to come soon. Now, of course, soon, in God's perspective, is different than in ours. It's not just that. Of course, we all think, like Peter said, right? With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years like a day. And so it's only been like a couple of days for the Lord, you know, and that kind of thing. So it's, uh, or six days, I guess, if you're counting that kind of thing or whatever it might be. If it's 2,000 since John wrote it, whatever. But uh, that, we shouldn't be thinking of soon in that perspective or quickly in that perspective. We should be thinking more in terms of God is doing something very definite And when he gets to the point where it's time, it will be time. And from God's perspective, it is coming, and it is coming soon. The the expectation on our part is one of anticipation, looking forward to with great anticipation. We want this to come. We want to be there. We want to be with the Lord. We want him to come and do everything he said he's going to do. We want to see his word fulfilled. And so there is this thrice encouragement, well, counting this four times, the idea that he is coming soon. Shortly, these things will come to pass. Hold on. And now, by the way, remember, in the first century, these initial churches that were first written, these, these words, those seven churches in Asia Minor, seems like about 100 years ago that we were there uh, in, in the early chapters of the book. It's actually only been about a year, by the way, but it maybe feels like much longer. But those churches were living under persecution, living in difficult times. And so the word of his soon coming would have brought them the capacity not just to look for his coming, but the ability to press on in the midst of what they're experiencing. And I would suggest that the very same encouragement is given to us through these words. Continue on, press on, continue to make your way, knowing that these things are coming. Yes, it's been 2,000 years, but that's not the point. They're coming, and in God's timetable, it will come right on time. And so for those of us who wait and long and anticipate, do so with the understanding that the hope that we have is a certain one, not an uncertain one. It's coming, and it's coming soon. And that's why we, of course, look to the Word of God for our understanding of these things. The Word of God, as he says, is faithful and is true. And we take him at his word. The Word of God is inspired by the Holy Spirit. It is spoken and recorded by the prophets. It's embodied and expressed by the eternal word made flesh. It's embraced by the churches of old. Too bad it's often set aside by the modern church, but it's intended to fuel the hope of the body of Christ, which is why we spend time in it, covering all of it. We want to know what God has to say. We want to understand, like it says here again in verse 6, that he's showing his servants the things which must surely or uh, shortly take place. The idea is that we would understand. Matter of fact, the word revelation, we said this all the way back at the beginning, the apocalypse, right? It means to lay bare. It's often been said in a word, it speaks of unveiling, but it speaks of making known, laying bare, naked, like there's nothing covering. The idea is that it is supposed to be understood. And so that's why we take time to try and understand it. And the intention here at the end of the book is a reminder of that, that we might know that these things are shortly going to come and take place. Verse 7 again, Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Again, I am coming 
quickly, and therefore blessed, oh, how happy is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. You will remember, this is the sixth, by the way, of seven, you could call them Beatitudes, the blessed bees that appear in the book of Revelation. Uh, The first one back in chapter one, verse three, uh, spoke of the idea of blessed is he who hears and, and, uh, and obeys and, you know, and lives out, as it were, the things that are written in this book. The idea of a blessing at the very outset of taking on this book, understanding it, and therefore living in the hope that it provides, or the worship that it, it, it encourages and that kind of thing. Here at the end, we have two more here as we uh, finish this section of, of the book, finish the book, really. But blessed is the one here who, again, keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. The idea of keeping is guarding, holding on to, holding fast to. It speaks of taking seriously. Again, for the believer in the first century that heard these words read the first time, and when these words were read to the churches, by the way, it wasn't just the seven letters that were read to the seven churches. It was the entire book that was given to the seven churches, including all the letters to each of the churches. So they all got to see what, what the Lord had to say to each of the churches, and then he had a, they had a chance to see what the Lord was saying overall through the scope of the entire book. And so the intention here, both among those first century believers, and as we wait for these things to happen, the encouragement is then passed on to us as well to keep the words of the prophecy of this book, to walk in it, even as it said in the beginning, blessed is he. And now I, John, verse eight, I saw and heard these things. And when I heard these things, uh, or when I heard uh, and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. And then he said to me, see that you do not do that. For I am your fellow servant, and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Um, I could go on about the very clear teaching of Scripture, not to venerate angels, people, any of those kinds of things. I think the statement is well made enough. You worship God and God alone. An angel is a super being, a spiritual being, not a physical being. They're not human like we are. I mean, it's hard to say they're not able to be touched per se, but they are spiritual beings. And they've manifested themselves throughout human history. Uh, As a matter of fact, in Hebrews 1.14, it tells us that they are ministering spirits, ministering to those who will inherit salvation. Uh, So the concept of guardian angels, one day you'll meet yours. I don't know if they'll be happy to see you, happy it's done. You know, for some of us, they may look a little beat up. You know, thank you, Lord, for bringing this one home. I'm kind of wiped, you know, but the point of the idea of angels being those that minister to those who are being saved and will inherit uh, the fullness of redemption, all this kind of thing, those who are born again, that's a biblical concept. Angels are real, but we don't worship them. You know, groups like the Mormons would have done well to not just be over, you know, if, if Joseph Smith did in fact see an angel, I think he made the whole thing up, but if he did in fact see an angel, he would have been wise to ask it a few questions before he just took it at face value. Angels are servants of God, and actually by God's design, some of them are even servants to us. As a matter of fact, Peter talks about how when it comes to the idea of salvation, angels are interested in understanding this. They don't know what it's like for the Lord to dwell within the hearts of his people. They don't know what it's like for God the Holy Spirit to not just be alongside of, but even to be in believers. There are elements of salvation because angels are not all-knowing. In some respects, they clearly know more than we do. But in many respects, they're still figuring things out too. They're created beings. 
So this angel sees John's response. John falls down. He's overwhelmed. He's absolutely shocked at this being that he's seeing here. But the angel says, no, don't do that. I'm, I'm, I'm your servant. I'm the servant of the prophets. I'm the servant of those. No, worship God alone. A very simple principle, but one that is, I think, sometimes a little fuzzy in the minds of many. Verse 10, and then he said to me, do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. Now these, uh, in verse 11, then becomes the last words of the angel. Uh, apparently, it would seem that this becomes the last of, uh, or it may, it may be that verse 15 is, but it's, it's right in this area here that the angel be- finishes his job and John closes out the book. But notice what he says here, do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. Those of you who are students of prophecy know that there is an exact opposite order given to somebody in the Old Testament, Daniel in particular, at the end of his prophecy. He's told the opposite, seal up these things for the time of the end. Um, And the idea there being that there are things that are spoken of in Daniel that clearly speak to the last days. Daniel is, uh, is among the premier apocalyptic writers in Scripture, and the things that he writes about not only deal with his immediate situation and the succeeding kingdoms that would follow the one that he was a prisoner in, but even all the way to the very end. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar has a vision that Daniel not only interprets, but actually tells Nebuchadnezzar what it was. Uh, but then he describes a series of events that ultimately uh, unfold in, in a succeeding group of kingdoms. But then when he gets his own vision in chapter 7, which deals with not only that same set of circumstances, although the imagery is different, but his vision now goes on to the point where the Ancient of Days comes and sets up his kingdom. And he's told here to seal these things until the end. Well, John is given the revelation And the revelation is the very unveiling of those things. It's the laying bare of those things, among others. The book of Revelation now gives in far greater detail those things that Daniel has sort of given a glimpse of, as detailed as his visions are. Uh, And so so here, uh, the angel tells John, you're not to seal this book. This book is to be shown. It's to be left open. It's not intended to be cryptic and, and not able to be understood, but rather it's intended to be laid bare that it might be seen, that it might be kept that it might be walked in. And he finishes verse 11 then by saying, or he says, and it goes on again, for the time is at hand. Again, the sense of the urgency of the moment that we're on the cusp and even the threshold of these things coming to pass. In verse 11, he who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. The idea there of he who is, let him continue to be. Um, as elsewhere in the book and as elsewhere throughout the scripture, this speaks to the idea of the condition of any of mankind. Some continue to walk in unrighteousness because they are not righteous. Others continue to walk in righteousness because they are righteous. Now, someone is not righteous or righteous not because of their own doing. Now, I, I never like to assume in our group that that doesn't need to be explained a little bit uh, because The truth of the matter is that if you are righteous, it is not because you are good enough. If you are unrighteous, it's not because you were bad enough. If you are bad, and what I mean by that is you walk in sin, you live in rebellion against God, you have no interest in the things of God, you instead are really consumed with the flesh and its own appetites with no real sense of, 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 of wanting anything different. Maybe in a moment of guilt you might, but the overarching uh, description of your life is one of being in sin. And the reason for that is because you are a sinner. 
You're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. In the same way, as a believer, as a follower of Christ, you have been made righteous. You don't do righteous. You're not righteous because you do righteous things. You do righteous things because you've been made righteous. And in the same way that somebody who is in sin can occasionally do something good, I like to say even Hitler probably held the door for his mom at some point in his life. In the same way that someone who is laden in sin can do good things periodically, so too can people who are righteous do things that are unrighteous periodically. But the general pattern of our lives reflects not just what we do, but what we ultimately are. And so why is this here? Why does John say this? Well, for the same reason he said something similar earlier. This book written in the first century is is intended to be a testimony to any kind of reader. It's a call. It's a reminder to the righteous to continue on, but it's also a call of God's grace. The fact that you know your condition or you're being confronted with your condition prior to Jesus coming is an act of God's grace. And it will do one of two things. It will either harden your heart and cause you to dig in your heels against him saying, I don't care what this book says about what's coming. I don't want to believe it. I'm going to do my own thing. Well, you're just living out what you are, but you've been warned. It's important that these things are here. In other words, This is just one of the manifold elements of the book that is intended to be understood. Uh, And again, this sentiment is much like, as we talked about when when John spoke this way earlier, it's much like in Matthew 25. Jesus talks about those, uh, uh, the sheep and the goats, right? The idea of those on his right hand who saw him when he was in need, he was in jail, he was hungry, he was thirsty, he he was sick, he was cold, and they took care of him. And they said, well, when did we do that? When you did it to the least of my brethren, you've done it to me. Likewise, he said to those on his left, he said, when I was hungry, you didn't feed me. When I was in jail, you didn't come see me. When I was sick, you didn't do anything for me. And it goes on. And they said, when did we do that? Or when did we not do that? When you did not do it to the least of my brethren, you didn't do it to me. Now, the the idea there is not, okay, well, these folks are righteous because they did these things, or these folks are unrighteous because they didn't do those things. No, the point is, they did these things because of who they were. And these people didn't do those things because of who they were. And that is the message of the scripture from start to finish. We never want to confuse this and think that anyone ever got to heaven because they were good enough. The Bible declares that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and there are no exceptions. Except for one, obviously. Jesus himself came God in the flesh and lived a perfect sinless life. But nobody other than Christ himself can make that claim. And therefore, short of his clothing you in righteousness, and this will come up again in a moment, short of that, you're lost. So a word like this in the book of Revelation is intended to stir the pot among the unregenerate, and intentionally so. Verse 12, and behold, I am coming quickly, the second of the three times he will say this, And my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do his commandments, or as it's generally translated or interpreted, uh, I should say, uh, in in many of the earlier manuscripts, rather, uh, blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city." For outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. 
Again, he continues on this thought. But notice he says again, I'm coming quickly. Behold, watch, check it out. I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me. Now, again, to continue on this thought, the idea of rewards for believers and punishment for unbelievers is a biblical concept all the way through. We see it in the Old Testament clearly. We see it in Paul's writings in the New Testament. We see it here in John's writing in the Revelation as he gives this word to us. And so the idea of rewards and punishments goes with the biblical narrative. But again, this is not, this is not the, the question of, of how you're saved. It's the question of whether or not you are saved. This is now the reward for the, those things that are done in the flesh. Matter of fact, if you would, turn with me to um, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I wasn't actually going to go here, but... I'm sorry. Oh, goodness. Yes, I think it's 2 Corinthians 5, right? Is it? Well, that, that's, uh, I'm, I'm looking for the passage that talks about the we all stand at the judgment seat of Christ and those things are burned away or wood, hay, and stubble. Um, 10, 2 Corinthians 10 or 5.10? 5.10, here we go. There it was. Thank you. Uh, verse 9, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things that are done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad, knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord we persuade men, but we are, uh, we are well known to God, and I also trust that we are well known to your consciences. That's not everything I was looking for there, but... Oh, shoot. Anyway, I, I meant to write. I should have written it down. didn't know I was going to go there. But Paul talks about the idea that as we all stand before the bema seat of Christ, the judgment seat, uh, the idea is that there is this purging fire that wipes away all the things that are wood, hay, and stubble. In other words, presumably what's in view there would seem to be those things that are done for the Lord, but not necessarily with the right heart. But these things are burned away. But rather, we, but still, we remain. Why? Because this is not a judgment of our souls, per se. It's just a judgment of the works that we do. Uh, and so, that being said, the idea of a believer's salvation and his security in that is a biblical concept. But what we do still does bring with it rewards, or those things are washed away or burned away, as it were. As a matter of fact, the Scriptures speak of the crowns that we lay at His feet. Well, what are those things but the rewards for the things that we've done for Him? They are opportunities to lay before Him in an act of worship the rewards that we received. In other words, rewards for us in heaven are not things to be clung to. They're seen for what they are. Even as Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 2.10, uh, or uh, Ephesians 2.10, where he talks about the good works that we do being laid out beforehand by the Lord. These are things that he gives us, that we might walk in them and honor him and bless him. And then at the end, we actually lay them before his feet as, as, they're, as they're seen as rewards that are, that are given to him in worship. It's this beautiful sense of what that's all about. However, for the lost, for those who are ultimately, back in uh, Revelation 22, for those who are in, uh, still continuing in their sin, outside the dogs, sorcerers, sexually immoral, murderers, idolaters, those who ever love and practice a lie and those kinds of things, they are outside of the blessing of God in that day. Now, by the way, the imagery here is not that we're in the New Jerusalem and just outside the gates are all of the unbelievers and sorcerers and all that kind of thing banging on the gates to get in. That's not the picture. They're nowhere around there. They have already, at this stage, been judged. We read earlier where 
death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. One of the earlier Beatitudes are blessed are those who are part of the first death, right? The idea that they're not part of the second death. So once again, a passage is put here at the very end of the book. It's not tucked away in the middle somewhere trying to be figured out. It's right there in plain view at the end of the scripture, reminding unbelievers to understand the predicament that their condition will bring upon them. Now, if you're here today and you're not a believer and you're hearing these things, you're thinking, well, this is not what I expected when I came to church. I expected to hear some nice, encouraging three-pointer that I could just walk around and feel good about. There are books that talk about that you can buy, but that's not what the church is supposed to be about. The church is about teaching the Word of God. And sometimes in the Word of God, we come to these passages that remind us of our actual condition outside of Christ. And if you don't hear about these things when we come to these passages, you're not going to hear them in the world. The world will celebrate your sin, and they'll encourage you in it, and they'll help you stay in it. But Jesus loves you too much not to tell you. The Holy Spirit is desiring for you to hear these things and to respond, lest you come to the end of your existence and find yourself now separated from God in the place that the Bible calls hell, the lake of fire. This is a reality. This is not a fictional place. This is not a fairy tale device invented by men to scare people into throwing money in the coffers. You will notice that we did not ask you for anything when you came in here. It's important that you hear these things for your sake, not for ours, for yours. And so therefore we talk about them. So I apologize if that's a bit heavy, but you're welcome. Now, verse 12, again, behold, I'm coming quickly. My reward is with me to give everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Um, we are probably all familiar with these terms, the Alpha and the Omega being the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, the beginning and the end. Uh, the same terminology used of him when he was uh, referred to in the churches or referred to himself, I should say, when he was talking to the churches. Um, he is there at the very beginning. He is the source, as John said in, in John uh, chapter 1. All things were made by him. Without him, nothing was made that was made. In Colossians 1, he is the source, the origin of the creation of God. Uh, creation exists because he created it. Uh, that may sound lofty again if you're not familiar with hearing those things. I thought God made the world and the heavens and, and all those things. He did. That's what Jesus is saying about himself, and this is what's being referred to in regard to him when these terms are being used. These are clear claims to his deity. Elsewhere, God himself is, is such terms are used of him, the Alpha and the Omega and such. We see here that Jesus is clearly seen by John, not just himself. Jesus referred to himself in terminology that no mistake could be made about his claim to deity. But those who followed him and knew him thought this of him as well. So those who say that Jesus never claimed to be God, that's not true. He not only claimed it, he claimed it often. He went to the cross because of that claim. We know he went to the cross because of sin, right? But the, the charge against him was blasphemy. He, being a man, made himself out to be God. And they killed him for it, at least from their perspective. Here at the end of the scripture, we are once again reminded that he is, by his own word, and John writes these things down, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. I am the first and the last, there before the creation ever was, and there when it reaches its consummation. Think of the awesomeness of our Lord when you read these words.
Verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, come, and let him who hears say, come, and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. Now, obviously, the first, uh, ultimately, um, is um, uh, the churches there in the first century in Asia Minor, right? The idea of those seven churches are hearing these words, and John is testifying to them, all right? Um, But... The idea of church, or ecclesia, as the Greek word is, speaks of a called-out assembly. It's used generally in, 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 in lots of different contexts, but it, in the Scripture, often obviously refers to the church as well. And so here, as Jesus says this to the church, he is speaking of those body of believers that are called by his name. Okay. Now, of course, in, in this point, now that history has come to an end and we're in eternity, this could easily be seen to refer to those among the, the tribe of Israel, the tribes of Israel, as well as the believers in the New Testament context. They are all under his name now. But the idea of them having this testimony given to the churches of that time, to the church as far as the, the body of Christ throughout the ages and such, of course then it would also be speaking to us as well. And so he is uh, sending these things to testify to the churches. I am the root of David and the offspring of David. That's an interesting term. The root means the starting point for David. David comes from him, ultimately, but he's also the offspring of David. Now, this is a messianic concept. You remember in 2 Samuel, or, uh, 1 Samuel, no, 2 Samuel 7, where, um, where Nathan comes and tells David, David wanted to build God a house, but there's too much blood on his hands, so he wasn't able to. So God sends Nathan to go tell David that he can't build the house, but instead, because this was in his heart, I will build you a house, says the Lord. And the house he's referring to is the messianic line that ultimately would find its its place in Christ. And so Christ is both the offspring of David in terms of being born of the Davidic line, but even more than that. That's interesting. And uh, is it Matthew 14 where Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and they've been questioning him, trying to trip him up, and then he turns around and asks them a question. <laughs> Let me ask you a question, spiritual guys. Whose son is David? What about the Christ? Whose son is he? Well, he's the son of David. Well, then how is it that David says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at your right, my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? If David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? In other words, the, the greater never sort of bows the knee to the lesser. It's the other way around. And they know this, and he knows they know this, and so he sort of stumps them and says, well, if, he's, if, the, if the Messiah is just a human descendant of David, why does David call him Lord? In other words, he's letting them know of his own deity in terms they would understand. Well, here, John reminds us of this truth about Jesus. Again, it's another claim to his deity. But he's both the root and the offspring of David, and he's also the bright and the morning star. Um, Do you know what I did? I missed the seventh beatitude. Verse 14, blessed are those who do his commandments, or again, who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life, may enter through the gates into the city. That's you and me. 
That's the last beatitude in the scripture. That's beautiful, isn't it? Sorry, I skipped over that. I didn't see that. It kind of went right by me. I'm the root of David, offspring of David, and the bright and morning star. Um, the idea of the morning star is a term that is used in Scripture a number of times. Jesus is clearly ascribing it to himself here. Bright, clearly, luminous, visible, that kind of thing, which follows when you think about a star. A star serves a couple of purposes, especially back in the days when these things were written. Uh, a star was something that gave a measure of light so that you could see by it, but it also provided for direction. It also helped you set your destination. Um, the morning star, or the early star, or actually if you follow the etymology of that term, morning, it actually speaks of the break of dawn, which of course is fitting as well, because what Christ is talking about here is the dawning of an entirely new day. This is all found and rooted in him. He's claiming these things for himself for two reasons. Number one, because he deserves the glory that is commensurate with that, but also so that we might recognize and clearly see that it's in him and in him alone that these things are. The descriptions of Christ throughout Scripture are manifold. There are lots of names. Uh, Some of you may have had this, by the way. How many of you had uh, or remember? There used to be a poster, uh, and in the middle of the poster was the words, I am, and then around it was like 30 different names of God kind of a thing. And, uh, and so, and, and, and names of Christ and, and this. And so, you know, when you think about the different names and titles that are ascribed to him in that, you begin to get a very, very full picture of not just the definitions of these terms, but what they mean and how they connect with him. Um, our peace, all of these different kinds of things. When we see these descriptions, we do well not to just kind of read them and move on, but to consider these things. Jesus himself, not just the theology around him, but the theology around him leads us to him. He's the center of all theology. He rightly said in John chapter 5 to the Pharisees, again, the religious leaders of his time, you study the scriptures because it's in them that you think you have eternal life, but it is they that speak of or testify of me. Testifies the idea of like in a court of law, like if you needed evidence for something, you would have testimony. People would testify to the truth of something. Jesus is saying, and, and he has also been talking about Moses testifying to him, the word testifying, all these things testify to who he is, that we might see and behold, that we might adore and worship, that we might fall down before and understand his singularly lofty place at the expense of all others that we might know him. This is why Paul cries that out in Philippians 3, that I might know him in the power of his resurrection and even in being conformed to his death. That's a desperate call to know Jesus, not just to be smart theologically, but to know the end of our theology personally as a friend. This is the end of our faith, him and knowing him. And so these titles are fascinating from a purely study theological point, but they testify about who he is and what he does. And the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. Now the Spirit and the Bride, this is the call of the redeemed bride and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, calling for the Messiah, the Savior, the Lord, our Bridegroom, to come 
please come. That's the cry of every believer, or at least it ought to be. If, uh, you know, the world around us often does distract us, consume us, it worries us. Sometimes it brings a lot of pleasure, and so we're distracted, don't think about really what our faith is all about. But the natural posture of a believer is, I cannot wait for him to come. Forgive me if I go back and use the illustration yet again, but, you know, the, when the bridegroom and the bride were finally of age to get married, they were often sort of put together at a young age. They were, you know, betrothed to each other. But the time would come when they were old enough to be of marrying age. And so the, the bridegroom would go and begin to build onto the house and all this kind of stuff, preparing a place that he would come back and get his beloved and bring her home. Of course, there's this wonderful picture of Christ and the church in this, right? Well, the anticipation and excitement between the bridegroom and the bride was palpable. It was, I mean, they were itching to just be together, and, and he's working on the place, and she's preparing and, and looking down the road. Is he coming? She's listening for sort of the sound of, you know, the, mu- the musicians and the trumpets and that. The bridegroom is coming and this kind of thing, and she would just get so excited. And, and, and that's the kind of feel uh, and, and fervor that believers naturally have for seeing the Lord. This is... Uh, Boy, I'll tell you something. When it came to, there was a big difference between the time I used to go to church as an unbeliever and when I got saved uh, in myself. I noticed over time a big difference. Uh, I grew up going to church like many of you. Uh, and as I would sit in the pews, as, as we would listen to the, you know, the, the homilies and all this kind of stuff, uh, you know, it was just a rote thing. It's just what we did. But when I got saved and I actually met Jesus, I mean, I didn't sit down at the coffee table and shake my hand or something. I'm not, you know, don't misunderstand me. But I was born again. I was now a different person. And I began to grow in a relationship with him that was rooted in Scripture, encouraged by fellowship and discipleship, and it grew into a love relationship with the Lord. Um. And that just, it just follows that that is the natural posture for a Christian. To know him is to love him. To read about him, to see the way he interacts, to, to watch the things that make him angry and the things that he encourages. To, you know, I, I hesitate to say hear his voice, but as you read the pages of scripture, you begin to see the character and the nature of this glorious Savior of ours, who condescended to such a degree that he would take, and when I say the wretches and dregs of society, I'm talking about us. And he would pick us up and he would take us to himself. I don't know about you, but I know what I was like. I know what I've done. I know what I am. And this meant the world to me. And to know that I get to see him one day and thank him in person, like I long for that. This is our faith. I hope you're not just here because you have an obligation to show up at church. I mean, some of the kids, I know maybe your parents dragged you out, and it's just we all go through it. But hopefully it's more than that. Hopefully it's more than that. It certainly can be much more than that. I think that's the encouragement of Scripture. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. Let him who hears say, come. And then there's the call to those who are thirsty. Let them come. The call now reverses, and it goes out to those who are thirsty. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. See the openness of that invitation. The one who we long to see is longing to bring others to himself. Again, a call to those outside. 
Jesus would say this very thing, essentially, in John chapter 7, actually in John chapter 4 and chapter 7. In John chapter 4, he meets a Samaritan woman at the well. She's all by herself in the middle of the day, which means she's probably an outcast even among the Samaritans and that kind of thing. She's been married a number of times. She's living with a guy, and she meets Jesus at the well, has no idea who he is. And so she's getting water. He says, give me a drink. And she's surprised he's talking to her. And he says to her, if you knew who it was who was talking to you, you would ask me and I'd give you living water. In John chapter 7, the last great day of the feast, all who are thirsty, let them come to me and drink. The invitation is just out for people to come and to receive. Again, this last part of the book is not all about the description of the place, per se. It's about the invitation to come and be part of the body, to be part of the family of God, to become a child of God. And that water is yours to take freely if you would come. For I testify, John now speaking in the first person, for I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written uh, in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, uh, and from the things that are written in this book. And so a warning follows the invitation. Uh, if anyone adds to these things, or if anyone takes away from these things. Um, we, again, we could speak to this technically in terms of those books of the canon and those kinds of things. But there is something even beyond that. That's a valid thing to, to consider and view here. But I would argue that it's a broader statement as well. It is possible to have 66 books in your Bible and be content with that and to add to it or to take things out of it as you're teaching it or as you're studying it and choosing, picking and choosing what to believe. The scriptures are given to us for our learning. Paul said in, uh, in Romans that the things that are written before were written through for our learning so that through the patience of the scriptures we might have hope. The idea is that the Word of God, matter of fact, uh, in, in, in Acts 17, Paul himself was under the scrutiny of the Bereans to make sure that the things that he was teaching them were so. The idea of the Scripture being held up as the standard for our, as our rule of you know, faith and practice, as, as you would technically describe it, but as we grow to know God and as we live out our faith, the Scriptures become the baseline, the, the foundation and, and, and source of teaching to help us know how to do it and whether we're doing it right or wrong. Okay, we study the scriptures so that we would know him and that we would know what blesses him and pleases him, to walk with him in a way that honors him and this kind of thing, or to avoid the things that don't. If we add or subtract to those things, we're doing a disservice. Now, what I'm not talking about, by the way, some of you are starting to tremble in your seats. I'm not talking about somebody who in a good faith effort is trying to figure out the context of something. That's not what I'm talking about. And God's not going to take your name out of the book of life because you made a mistake in a good sense effort trying to understand the Word of God. We're talking here about something that is much more intentional, somebody who would seek to do this. The mention of this kind of thing, again, throughout Scripture is prevalent. False teachers, false prophets, those who would seek to mislead, some who would be so close to the truth but still be trying to mislead away. This, again, is a warning to those who would seek to do that and to be that. 
and that's an act of grace. There are many who are not on the narrow road that leads to everlasting life because they're choosing not to be by virtue of rejecting what God has said. It's not that it isn't there. They're rejecting. And they're pacifying. They're reading parts of the scripture that they like, usually the Psalms, something like that, never reading theology, never really understanding how the dots connect, not really wanting, you know, maybe saying Jesus was a great teacher, thinking that they're doing him a solid by complimenting him like that. He's a great teacher. Love that Jesus. Good teacher. But he said he was God. Now, hold on a second. That's your interpretation. They're rejecting. They're not looking. They don't want to know. This is as close as I'm going to get because this is what I'm comfortable with. There's a warning for you. For those who would teach, I'm going to be a little specific here. There are those, of course, in levels, if we kind of take the average person that sort of rejects and doesn't want to know, go to the next place and describe maybe a, a church or a pastor, a, a famous personality that teaches only part of the Scripture. God wants you to be healthy and wealthy all the time. God wants to make sure you don't experience hardship. You're a king's kid, after all. You shouldn't have to endure hardship. Grow up in the palace. You're a king's kid. Well, what have you done but ruined, like, everybody's faith every time a hardship comes their way now? They think they don't have faith. They don't believe. You've destroyed them. Shame on you. It's important that we take the word at the word, at its word, that we read it and let it say to us what it says and not read into it what we hope it says or want it to say. And if, if what we think it says doesn't line up with, if, if what we think it says doesn't line up with what it actually does says, say? <sighs> Should have wrote that one out before I said it. But if that's where we are, where if we're bringing a view to the Scripture and saying this is what it's teaching when in fact it's not, one of us is wrong and it's not the Bible. So adding and subtracting from the Scripture, um, whether it be literally you know, again, I mentioned the Mormons earlier. What is the Book of Mormon but another testament of Jesus Christ it purports to be, right? It's not, actually, but it purports to be that. What have they done? They've added to the Scripture. So there's a warning against these things, and a just one. Because after all, if you distort the Word of God, you are distorting what God has said about Himself, about what He does, what He doesn't do, His plan of salvation, his workings among men throughout all of human history. This is not to be tampered with or trifled with. Matter of fact, this is why James says, don't many of you seek to be teachers? I'm not afraid of public speaking, but I, I do recognize the weight of what I'm doing when I talk to y'all. When we open this book and we go through it, that's not a small thing. There's a consequence for teaching wrong. There is the damage that you can do in someone's life. And so you apply yourself, as any Bible teacher should, to understand these things well enough to communicate them so that they're communicated correctly, that they're communicated in a way that can be received is what God has actually said, and not just what I think he said, and certainly not just my opinions, and this is not a time to tell clever stories. This is a time to hear from the Lord. 
And that's why we do this. That's why you're here. That's why I sit under teaching and that kind of thing. That's why we do it. And so to distort that teaching is a crime of the highest order. This is God. This is God's word that he's given to us. And so the consequence, obviously, is commensurate with that. But again, it speaks now not to someone who's trying to understand, but they make a mistake or something. This is rather somebody who is intentionally seeking to distort, and willfully so, the word of God. And then finally, now we come to these final words in the revelation of God in Scripture here. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Now, it is fascinating to me that the last thing that Jesus says, the last thing that Jesus says to the world is, I'm coming soon. I'm coming quickly. You cannot hear that message enough. You cannot live in anticipation of seeing him enough. This is the most beautiful call that has ever gone forth, the most beautiful news. He is coming soon. Not just some great stuff is on the way. He's coming soon. Again, he is the end of our faith. And so John rightly says, and the church rightly says, amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Um, I've mentioned before, and we'll close here as one more verse, but um, there's, uh, like any any teacher, you know, you have resources that you study with, and these resources generally are the work of pastors and teachers that have gone on before and that kind of thing. And you, you know, you study the word and then you kind of go to the other teachers and find out if you're off track or something like that, you know, the things you use them for. But uh, I've got a few particular favorites and uh, I wanted to share a closing quote from one of them. Um, Christianity is not a faith which bids us look for a gradual upward march of man till he reaches an ideal state of civilization. Redemptive history remains incomplete until Christ returns. It is for the final act in the great drama of redemption that the church awaits with longing. We want this to come. We don't set aside our love for those that are lost still, family, friends, and otherwise. But we rest in the fact that God loves them even more. And so if he moves things ahead, it's not because he doesn't love. And so we can rest in the confidence that when we say, as Jesus taught his disciples to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we want God's unfolding plans and purposes to unfold. This is the normal, correct posture of the church. We want to see these things come to pass. And with that, the final verse, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And all God's people said, amen. Well, there you go. We've uh, finished not only the book of Revelation, but actually our journey through the New Testament. In uh, about 13, 12 and a half, 13 years, with uh, a couple of other studies, we've done Joshua and various other studies along the way, but in about 13 years, we finished the New Testament. Actually, we did Matthew in our home Bible study before we actually started the church in the book of Acts, so probably a good solid 13 years through the New Testament, but, um, but that's a feat. So some have been with us the whole time. Some of you have come along a little bit lately, but we're, uh, we're going to start another book study in the coming weeks. There's a couple of things we're going to do between now and then, but um, I'll tell you what, um, we'll take a minute here and have our last 
open up the floor for Q&A in the book of Revelation if anyone has a question before we before I take my finger out of the book and we close the book on Revelation. Anybody got anything? If not, no worries. But if you do, feel free. No? All right. Maybe amen is just a good place to leave it then. All right. There it is. There it is. Amen. Praise the Lord. Father, thank you for taking us through this glorious book. Thank you for taking us into the place where you describe, where you build anticipation, where you create a desire to respond in worship. Thank you that you brought us into the throne room. Thank you that you brought us uh, to the end of time and even into eternity as we've studied this. And Father, in no way have we done full justice to everything that's here. But thank you even for what we've been able to glean. We pray that it would cause in us all those effects, that we'd find ourselves all the more in love with Jesus and longing for his coming. And that, Father, each day that we live, we'd be reminded of the great hope and promise that we're one day closer. (laughs) Father, this is a world that is growing in decided opposition to you. But we thank you that in the end, all things will be right. All things will be pure. You'll be in the middle of all that is. You will be our God and we will be your people. In the very fullest of physical proximity kinds of ways, we'll be with you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you lead us through this life right now, that you've given us this word, all of which speaks of you. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you live within us and have sealed us until the day of that full culmination of the redemption. We thank you that as believers, we walk through each day knowing that we're already yours. We're in your hands and nothing can snatch us away. But one day we'll actually be with you. Father, we praise you and bless you. And I pray for any here uh, among us that has never come and received the grace and the forgiveness that Jesus paid for at the cross. We thank you that he went to the cross on our behalf, he who knew no sin, becoming sin with our sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And we thank you that he took our sin upon himself, died on the cross, was buried according to the scripture. This was your plan from the beginning. And that he rose again on that third day, according to the scripture. We thank you that your love for us is such, Father, that you gave your only begotten son, that if we would believe in him, we'd not perish but have everlasting life. And so, Father, if there are any among us who are unsaved, who are outside of the grace of God, who have not received this gift that Jesus has bought and paid for with his own blood. I pray that here in this moment, right now, they would come. And if that's you, I invite you to pray with me now that you might receive Jesus, that you might fall in behind him, as it were, that he would become your Lord, your Savior. He'd become the one that you plant all your hopes in, the one that you follow as a disciple, the one that you Forsake the world for no turning back. I invite you to pray with me now. Father in heaven, I confess to you that I'm a sinner, that I have avoided you. I have redefined you. I have made you after my own image, and therefore I've denied you. But I do believe that Jesus, God in the flesh, has come and has taken my sin away 
and paid for it on his cross. That forgiveness is mine now, not because of what I've done, but because of what he has done. And now my sins have been washed away past, present, and future at the cross. Thank you for your love and your grace. Thank you for setting me free from my sin. And thank you for taking me by the hand and your promise to lead me home. Praise you and bless you. And ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to go ahead and sing a last song before we close today. So why don't you all stand?
Lord, thank you. Come quickly, even so. Amen. We love you. We thank you for everything. Go before us as we leave this place. In Jesus' name, amen.